Okay, well, this morning we continue our series on the seven churches in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. How many remember this series? Wasn't that long ago. All right, very good. We began with Ephesus, the church of loveless orthodoxy, and then Smyrna, the church of the persevering persecuted, and we are now ready for the church at Pergamum, which could be characterized as the church that in the face of intense persecution uh, had many who did not compromise, and yet there were those who did compromise, and those who did found a way to justify it. So Christ's message to them consists of just six verses, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2, and we'll read through it here shortly. Um, Like most of the other seven churches here in Asia Minor, it is praised for doing some things well and scolded for certain sins and failures. However, the rebuke here is directed not to really the whole church, but to certain members within that church. Nonetheless, the church overall is guilty of tolerating the teachings and practices of this particular group within it. And so we'll begin with some uh, information about the city itself, some helpful background material to set things up, and then we'll work through the text verse by verse, giving most of our attention to what it is, what is going on there that the Lord is unhappy about, and then we'll conclude with just a couple comments on how the passage might be relevant to us. Um, Not really much needs to be said about that because the lessons should be obvious along the way. And I think you'll find the material interesting. I found it quite interesting when I was preparing for it, and and, um, it actually got a little long, and so after the men's meeting last yesterday, I went back to shorten it, and I was able to eliminate like 500 words, which is fairly significant, but then I found another 500 words to add into it, so back to where we were. All right, so let's start with uh, some background. As you will remember, and as this map shows, Ephesus is naturally the first stop on the travel circuit that one would take from from coming from Patmos, where John has written Revelation. Next is Smyrna to the north, and then Pergamon, about 60 miles north of Smyrna. And unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamon is not on the Aegean Sea, rather it's about 15 miles inland. Some versions of the Bible translate the name of this city as Pergamos, and I as understand it, this is how the name is rendered in modern Greek, but the ancients knew it as Pergamum. So back in the day, going back, you know, quite a while, 281 to 133 BC, it was the capital of what was called the <coughs> Kingdom of Pergamum during the Annelid dynasty. And it was from the city that they ruled the western part of Asia and had transformed it not into a mighty fortress, a capital, but also into a major cultural center as well. And eventually the city was given over to the Romans and it continued to serve as the Roman capital of this region right up to 130 AD. So at the time when the church there in Pergamon received a copy of John's vision, Uh, This city was the center of government for all of Western Asia and had been for almost three centuries. And the Christians there lived in a city that was heavily occupied by Roman authorities and Roman officials and Roman soldiers. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, because Pergamum was not a major seaport like Ephesus, it did not enjoy the same level of commerce and trade, nor did it have the same population. It had about 100,000 less people. Nonetheless, the world of that day still regarded it as the greatest city in Asia. Um, This always happens when I get up here. All right. 
Another important feature that stood out was its investment in learning and education. This is not really that relevant to our passage, but it is somewhat interesting. Pergamon hosted one of the largest libraries of the ancient world, a library that housed over 200,000 books, or actually scrolls made of papyrus and parchment. Uh, this would be an immense number. <coughs> I'm losing my voice. Sorry. <coughs> All right. This would be an immense number when everything, of course, had to be copied by hand. And you may remember that papyrus, from previous studies, was a type of paper that came from a plant, and though it served the purpose, it tended to be fragile. Parchment, on the other hand, was a paper made of thinly pressed, specially treated animal skins and was invented to improve durability. Remember that whole discussion? And it was here in Pergamum that parchment was invented. And in fact, the word parchment itself in the original language is derived from the name of this city. And like Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamon was also alive uh, with lots of religious activity. And we'll want to talk about that here. It was filled with temples and shrines to various deities, including Roman emperors. It boasted two great Roman temples, one dedicated to uh, the worship of Rome's first and greatest emperor, Caesar Augustus, and the other to Emperor Trajan, Rome's greatest warrior, who through military conquest, both, both as a general and then as an emperor, advanced Rome into the mighty emperor that it had become. However, the temple to Trajan was probably built a few years after Revelation was written, even so it clearly reveals the um, cult-like devotion the city and its citizens had to Rome and her emperors. And as the Roman capital of Western Asia, we would expect this. <clears throat> uh, you may recall from the previous sermon that at the time Smyrna was a hub of emperor worship. Well, the same can be said for Pergamum as well. Um, one was, of course, free to worship other deities as long as you paid homage to the emperor. Remember that whole discussion? So even before Rome officially mandated it, Roman emperor, or emperor worship in Pergamum was the law of the land as it was in Smyrna. And on this, you might recall the previous discussion of how the worship of Roman emperors was seen simply as an act of patriotism. It was expected of everyone and because it's, this was your civic duty. <clears throat> and the temple built to honor Caesar Augustus was one of the ways that this worship was acquired from the people. And it was actually a major attraction, drawing in worshipers from across Asia Minor and beyond. But his temple was not the only happening spot in town. There were popular temples built and devoted to some of the major Roman gods as well. One that was especially impressive was a shrine to Zeus, the god over all gods. It consisted of a gigantic 40-foot-high altar that was built on the top of a mountain overlooking the city. Zeus was honored for giving Pergamum victory over the Galatians 300 years earlier in a great military battle, and sacrifices were offered up on this altar around the clock, 24 hours a day, every day. <coughs> there was also a temple to his daughter, Athena, the goddess of battle strategies and wisdom. Here we see her holding both a battle shield and long spear. Zeus provided the brawn, she provided the brains. And uh, 
one of the most, well, this would be the most famous temple in Pergamum was the one for um, Asclepius, the god of healing, represented there by the serpent. Thousands of people flocked to this temple, which was dedicated to therapy and healing. You might think of it as the Mayo Clinic of the day. Uh, their traditional medicine, psychiatry, alternative treatments, magic, religious rituals were combined to treat those suffering from all sorts of illnesses. Priest doctors who practice ancestral therapy and even dream therapy. Um, somehow in all these occultic practices and superstition, serpents became associated with healing. Those seeking treatment would spend the night in the temple. There in the dark, if you were fortunate, a temple snake or snakes would come and slither over you while you slept. And <clears throat> the touch of the snake was seen as the touch of Asclepius, the god of healing. And um, the custom and the, the legend itself, you might, you know, this is somewhat simula similar to what we read about in John's gospel concerning a certain pool in Jerusalem. People believe that an angel would stir up the water, and if you could get into the pool at the right time, you would be healed. Well, likewise, the temple of Asclepius had the same kind of reputation. And then there was Dionysus, uh, the patron god of Pergamon. He's the main god of the city, the patron god. He's the god that controls and blesses the city. I practice these names all week. I'm doing pretty good. Asclepius, Dionysus. <clears throat> Dionysus is the god of the grape harvest, winemaking, orchards and fruit, vegetation, fertility, festivity, insanity, ritual madness, religious ecstasy, and theater. So simply put, he is a party god, all right? <laughs> Uh, this is the temple you go to, literally, to celebrate drunkenness, revelry, and promiscuous sex. And it was a very popular temple. <laughs> Statutes show him as holding, as you see there, an oversized cup of wine. And to symbolize what he is all about, he is completely naked. But to keep things family-friendly, we're just showing the top half of his nakedness today. <laughs> all right, so... Where did the name Dennis come from? Really? No kiss. This explains some things. <laughs> we have a we have a we have an offspring of the party god with us today. <laughs> Who'd ever thought it'd be Denny? <laughs> all right. So to put all this together now. The sacred, the sacred temple to Rome's first and greatest emperor, Caesar Augustus, the enormous altar to Zeus with round-the-clock sacrifices, the healing temple of Asclepius, which drew in thousands of people seeking treatment, and the gratification of every lust promised in the temple of Dionysus, all made Pergamum a major hub of pagan worship. And because it was also the center of Rome's imperial power in Asia, and a protector of this alliance between paganism and the state, well, let's just say that Pergamum was one of the most dangerous places for Christians of the time. This was not a safe city for them to live in. Dangerous for two reasons. The physical threat of persecution and hardship, which we will talk about, and worse yet, the spiritual threat of compromising one's faith in order to avoid persecution and hardship. So with that background and information in mind, let's now consider Christ's message to the church there. We'll begin with verse 12 of chapter 2, and um, 
You can follow along in your own Bibles if you wish, but I'll be reading it for you here. So, in his vision, the glorified Christ tells John, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and do not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise it will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, so Jesus begins by identifying himself as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, a description that comes from the opening vision uh, John has of Jesus back in chapter 1. The image found there in the previous chapter is a terrifying one, that of Christ, the divine warrior, wielding a deadly weapon, sent on behalf of God to overthrow the wicked kingdoms of the world and to punish all who have disobeyed his law and have rejected the gospel. Two different types of swords are mentioned in the book of Revelation. They're both translated sword in our English Bibles, but they are different words in the Greek. One is a short sword, more like a dagger. It's about 18 inches long. All the Roman soldiers carried one. Think of it as equivalent to a sidearm that a modern police officer would have. It is very dangerous, but at the same time, it's not all that efficient in, say, a battlefield. The other sword is much longer, three to five feet long, with a slightly curved blade, uh, to speak frankly, for optimal thrusting and slashing. Such a sword, if wielded properly by a strong soldier, could cut an enemy's shield in half with one strong blow. And this was the sword used on the battlefield, and it had a fearsome reputation. And it is the sword re referred to here, the one being brandished by Christ. So the message is pretty clear. He means business. He is on the verge of administering judgment. The sword is referred to again in the same passage in verse 16. There Christ promises to use it on those who refuse to repent. And the image is truly intimidating and gives the warning a great deal of force. This is no, no empty threat. And the intensity of the threat, very important, and the harshness of the punishment speaks to the severity of the sin. But before Jesus gets into that, he offers them words of praise. And these are words of well-deserved praise. There is much going on in this church that pleases him, and he is more than willing to tell them that. Where he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and yet in spite of this, you're holding on to my name. You're not denying your faith in me. Even during this time of Antipas, who uh, was put to death, um, you are holding strong even though you live where Satan has his throne. So Jesus recognizes that Pergamum is a tough place to maintain one's commitment to him. The city is so hostile to the gospel and those who live in it and try to share, try to share that gospel that one can speak of it as the place where Satan lives, his very seat of power. And given this hostility and the danger it posed, the temptation to walk away is very real. Christ appreciates, he really does, the difficulties and hardships they face because of his name. 
and applauds them for not shrinking back or distancing themselves from him. And in this, he refers to a particular situation when persecution heated up to the point that one of their own, a man named Antipas, suffered martyrdom. And though martyrs and martyrdom are referred to all through the book of Revelation, this is the only time when a martyr is actually mentioned by name. And we don't really know anything about him, but from the passage here, it seems that his death resulted in two reactions, forming two different groups within the church. There were those who were inspired by his example and were resolved to remain true, and as we will see, there were others who were shaken up by it, frightened, and looked for a way to remain a Christian, but yet avoid the hardship. And they convinced themselves that when it came, down, when it came to taking a stand, that there could be some wiggle room, as they say. But that wiggle room was a path to compromise. And Jesus, of course, commends those who stood firm and rebukes those who went soft. So the reference to them living where Satan's throne is serves to reveal their true persecutor. The oppression they faced, including the martyrdom of Antipas, may outwardly be the actions of local city officials and hostile pagan neighbors, but ultimately, as we see here, the one behind it all is Satan, who is working behind the scenes, using political institutions and community leaders to suppress the gospel, silence the believers, and obliterate the Christian movement, or at least try to. From all that we know, Pergamum was, at the time of this um, writing, the center of Christian persecution. And so the throne of Satan is really to be seen as a metaphor that captures the malicious and fervent opposition the city had toward the early believers. But yet, the church there was surviving, even under this great pressure. And to this, Jesus is greatly pleased, and he commends them. They're standing firm and living in a manner consistent with their calling. And in this, they set an example for us. However, this isn't true of everyone in the church. Indeed, a number of them chose the path of compromise. And this leads us to the, to the complaint in verses 14 and 15. We can assume that upon the death of their brother Antipas, that some became quite fearful, began to look for some leeway. And after church on Sunday morning and in their home groups and so on, a number of them were questioning whether this exhortation to be faithful to death was the only option. After all, who will spread the gospel to others if there aren't any Christians around to spread that gospel? You could hear that being said. What good are we to the cause if we are dead? And so on. On the other hand, others were arguing that we must remain strong and not shrink back. And so the church is battling this controversy within it. And unfortunately, a number of those chose the side of compromise. And the arguments were appealing on that. And so we pick it up here in verse 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, kind of an interesting passage there. Now, before we get into the content itself, it might be helpful to point out that most likely we are talking about one group of false teachers promoting compromise, not two. Those who have adopted the principles of Balaam are um, here, we could safely say, are the Nicolaitans. And you might remember that the Nicolaitans were referred to earlier in Christ's warning to the church at Ephesus. And we don't really know who they are or what troublesome teaching or practices they were promoting exactly. But this passage might provide a clue. 
The church at Ephesus did not tolerate them. The church at Pergamum here did. And now we're getting a picture of what things look like when they are allowed to worm their way in. Essentially, they twist scripture to justify sin. They are deceivers in this for personal gain. And they are zealous in converting others to their position. And this situation with Balaam helps to illustrate the issues involved. All right? So, to appreciate Christ's reference to Balaam, we need to go back and do a little review, just in case it's been a while since you've read the Old Testament book of Numbers, and it's probably been a while for some. Near the end, and you'll remember the story, near the end of their 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites came up on the plains of Moab, where they could look across the Jordan and see the promised land of Canaan. They're getting close, and Balak, the king of Moab, was terrified of the threat that this posed. And he's beside himself, and he decided to hire a pagan seer or diviner, a soothsayer named Balaam to place a curse on the Israelites. How many remember the story? Should be familiar. Balaam supposedly had supernatural abilities and was more than eager to uh, sell his services. And the king promised a large sum of money. All he had to do was this one simple thing. I mean, who could turn that down? It should be simple enough. So it's a fascinating story. It's even quite funny, and it's worth reading again. Balaam tries to invoke this curse, but out of his mouth comes what? A blessing instead. And the king just goes crazy. And um, Balaam explains that the God of the Israelites is intervening and is just way too powerful for him. And he tells the king that he simply cannot make his mouth say what um, he needs to say. He is powerless in, uh, in uttering this curse. But the King insists that he try again, this time from a different location, as though that will somehow help. But the same thing happens, and out of his mouth comes a blessing, not a curse. And this goes on for four different times. And eventually, Balaam comes up with another plan, as the verse here in Revelation reveals. Basically, if I can't curse them, maybe there is a way for them to bring God's curse upon themselves. And so he tells the king to send into the camp of the Israelites, um, all of his beautiful women of Moab, so as to seduce them. And once they are seduced, he assures the king they will worship the idols that their God has forbidden them to worship, and this will incur his wrath against them. Okay, now about that payment you promised, all right? And as we read in Numbers 25, that's exactly what happened. Here's the passage. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the, Baal, to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Israel told Israel's judges, kill each of the men who align themselves with Baal of Peor. Now, since that time... <clears throat> Balaam's name has been associated with, with the scheme of leading God's people into sin for personal gain. And it is in this light that he is referred to in 2 Peter and in Jude and here in Revelation. And so when Jesus expresses his contention that some at Pergamum were holding the teaching of Balaam, he is referring to those who are advising their fellow Christians to compromise their faith to go along with some of the expected customs there in Pergamum, customs that involved idolatry and immorality. And in this case, the personal gain 
actually had more to do with social acceptance and avoiding the hardship of persecution rather than anything financial. And keep in mind here, as, <clears throat> as we've talked about before, that this is a polytheistic culture and it was no big deal to everyone to just worship one more deity. And this is the mindset, the attitude that these believers in Pergamum grew up with before their conversions. And for that matter, as far as everyone else is concerned, you know, all the Romans and pagan neighbors, none of this requires one to actually renounce Christ. One can still worship and serve him if you want to. You just add the Roman emperor and Zeus and Athena and Asclepius and Dionysus and maybe a few more. You know, we're not replacing anyone. We're just simply adding others. And so upon the increased threat of persecution, even martyrdom, some of the folks in that church start thinking along and hard about all of this. You know, we have families, we have obligations. Maybe Antipas went too far. Maybe Christ isn't expecting us to give up our lives, or at least at this point. Maybe we have other options. Maybe there is a way to go along with all this, just kind of like go through the motions and not really mean it. After all, these are just statutes. They aren't really gods. Such gods don't even exist. And so how can we be guilty of idolatry? There is nothing there being worshipped, and so on. These are the sorts of discussions we would expect in that situation. Philosophical questions about what worship actually is and what, I, what an idol actually is and what faithfulness to the gospel actually entails, and so on. When things heat up here, there will be similar philosophical questions. Not the same, but similar the temptation to avoid suffering will be extremely great, and we will look for wiggle room, ways to justify compromise. But Christ sees all this as nothing other than the heresy of Balaam, and ironically, the sins they are leading the people into here at Pergamum are the very same ones Balaam led the Israelites into, idolatry and sexual immorality. Because one compromise leads to another, one sin leads to another, and eventually, as you know, it all leads to a denial of the faith itself. So, the scenario here is not hard to imagine. Let me walk us through it. <clears throat> it all begins with a simple dinner invitation from one of your pagan neighbors or co-workers or maybe from an unsaved family member. He and his wife are celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary, and they have invited you and 100 other people to the party. And it will be held this Saturday night, 6 o'clock in the evening, at the Temple of Dionysus. Dinner and entertainment will be provided. This is how it worked. And as you can imagine, the dinner is not just a dinner. It is a religious meal. It involves eating meat that has been offered up to, in this case, the deity Dionysus. And all this was a common thing throughout the Greco world of that day. And it was especially common in Pergamon, whatever the deity it may have been. These religious meals and temples were as much a part of their culture as county fairs and concerts and going to the movies and attending Friday night football games are to us. Copies of such invitations to these kinds of dinners and banquets and other celebrations, they have survived. They're great value to historians. Special meat for these ritualistic meals would be purchased from the marketplace. That meat would be sacrificed on the altar to the deity, again, whatever it might be, whoever it might be, but only a portion of it would be consumed by the fire. There, a lot of it would be left over, and this left you with two options. The meat that was left over could be sold back to the marketplace, and the money then would be used to help pay for the upkeep of the temple. That was a common practice. Or, second option, 
the leftover meat could be consumed by the worshipers as part of that religious meal, which would take place in that temple following that sacrifice. And oftentimes these religious meals became parties or banquets that, you know, you would be invited to. The New Testament refers to both of these situations. <clears throat> and it's fairly easy to keep things straight because, as I understand it, there are two different words for these two different uses of the meat, at least two different words in the original language. In some situations, Christians were allowed to buy meat in the marketplace for their own consumption, even meat left over from the sacrifices made at one of the altars. This was not considered troublesome if they simply took it home and ate it like any other food, like going to get groceries. The only time eating meat sacrificed to an idol was a problem is, of course, as you can see, is when a Christian joined his pagan friends or pagan family members in the temple or a building associated with that temple and sharing it as a religious meal. And these meals always involve certain pagan rituals. And it is the second use of the meat that the New Testament condemns, these religious meals in the temples of these deities. And it appears that this is what the Pergamons were doing, some of them, so as to enjoy their social standing and in the long term avoid persecution. Everyone following me so far, how this is all working? So if you're going to live in Pergamon, you are going to accept these invitations. You're going to worship in these temples, and you're going to share in the religious meals, period. To refuse to do so is to not just insult the host, but the whole community, and worse yet, the gods themselves. And indeed, whenever a city steeped in this stuff like Pergamum would suffer a drought or a plague or some other hardship, what happened? Who's to blame? The Christians. The gods are angry because these people are being so belligerent and stubborn. This has to change. Everyone would be upset with them. You know, they must yield or be punished until they do. And they are despised as uncooperative and obstinate. And, you know, no one wants to be that. <clears throat> and with Rome, well, again, the issue there was patriotism and allegiance. To not burn incense before the image of the, of the emperor was to be seen as an act of defiance. Again, it was your civic duty. Comply or suffer. So you're getting this from all different angles. Pergamon really is a place tough. It really is a difficult place, a tough place to live. And so we can assume that there were those who, feeling all the heat, especially after the martyrdom of Antipas, I mean, what a, what a startling thing that would have been, they started thinking of novel ways to keep their faith and yet at the same time give what their friends and family members and neighbors and even Roman officials were demanding of them. No doubt, <clears throat> part of that whole discussion, driven by the Nicolaitans, is that these deities are not even real. There is no Zeus. And so how does one worship something that doesn't exist? These deities mean nothing to me or to you. We can go through the motions and not be guilty of compromise, and so on. And one could see why such arguments might be appealing. And so some of them probably reasoned that they could go along with it if they viewed it nothing more than a regular meal. After all, it's, it's what's in your heart that counts, right? <laughs> Well, <clears throat> we need to remember that all the gods mentioned in the Old Testament are not real either, but nonetheless, there are weighty commands about not acknowledging them in worship and weighty punishments for those who do. These 
Temple meals, they were troublesome on a number of levels. I mean, prayers were offered up to the deity. His name would be called upon for blessings. And then there would be the rituals themselves, including the sacrifices and pledges of devotion and so on. All this contributes to the lie that they are real, which is a lie. And this, in turn, keeps others from turning to the one true God. The other problem here is that these religious meals also involve acts of sexual immorality. We cannot understate this. One sin does lead to another. It always does. It's no surprise that in the Bible, eating food sacrificed to idols, if you ever look at this, is often paired up with, immediately in the same verse, you know, with sexual immorality. Idolatry and fornication go hand in hand back in the days of Balaam and here in Pergamum as well. Sexual activity was actually part of the event, part of the celebration or religious ritual. We have reports of these cultic meals consisting of long parties of loud and foul songs, drunkenness, gluttony, and all kinds of revelry and perversion. The details here are disturbing. It was common to have adolescent and young teenage boys serving as waiters, sexually available to those that they would be serving. And they actually had a name for these boys. They were called luckless slave boys. We have reports of wine servers dressing in drag. This was, ex this was expected. Even those playing the music were expected to be available to please their guests sexually. Those who were the most enticing sexually were professionals, you know, prostitutes, and they would be hired by the host to come to these parties and satisfy their guests, his guests. Indeed, hosting these dinners and banquets, you know, the, those hosting these dinners and banquets wanted to be sure that it would be a night to be remembered. And the more the people indulge, the more the deity would be honored. Now, this level of indulgence and orgy probably didn't characterize every such dinner in the temple, but we can assume that most, if not all, did involve some form of fornication. And we need to remember that, this, you know, that the sexual, sexual ethics of the ancient world was vastly different than our own. Our culture is pretty bad, but overall it shows much more restraint than that one did. And certainly... We would expect a lot of excess. What happened to him? There he is. <laughs> Certainly, we would expect a lot of excess at any feast held in honor of Dionysus, the patron god of Pergamum, a party god of drunkenness and revelry and sexual promiscuity. You know, the, the religious feasts in his temple were certainly over the top. <clears throat> so again, this is how the believers there lived before their conversion. Perhaps some of them were still attracted to these kinds of parties and were more than willing to join in them if there was just the slightest way to justify it. Others may have been reluctant but went along with it just enough so as to maintain their social standing and avoid persecution. Others went all the way claiming that the physical body and what we do with it is irrelevant to our, spiritual, to our spirituality. That was a common thing in those days to think that. Others yet rejected all of these weak arguments and were willing to suffer the consequences following the example of Antipas. And so we have in this church somewhat of a division, those who did not compromise and those who did. But it doesn't appear that there was any contention between the groups who just have different uh, philosophies about all this. The church at Ephesus faced the same arguments and temptations regarding the worship of Artemis, if you might remember, the god of fertility and a lot of sexual activity around her worship. But they, the Ephesians, categorically rejected it, and Christ applauded them for, for renouncing the Nicolaitans. But Pergamon was more open to those arguments and, um, to a large degree, embraced them. 
But there is still hope, and this brings us to the correction at the beginning of the next verse. Very simple correction. So repent, followed by a warning. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the verb repent literally, literally means, as you know, to change one's mind. It's a change of mind that results in change of behavior, change of one's lifestyle. They must recognize the danger of this false teaching that has been embraced and that the whole church has tolerated. And they are to stop what they've been doing and divorce themselves completely from all of it. And if things don't change, Christ promises to come, to come quickly and fiercely and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. A more literal translation is, I will make war against them. And the image is that, of course, of aggressive and violent action, meant to convey just how serious he is about this and just how serious this sin really is. And again, the word used for sword here is not that little eight-inch dagger or sidearm. It is the word used in battle, three to five feet long, designed for massive destruction. And in this case, the sword, as we know, is a metaphor for the words that come out of Christ's mouth, namely his word of judgment, fierce, intense, severe judgment, judgment that is just and true. The object of this warning are those who have compromised, noted by the words, fight against them. But yet he also says, I will come to you, referring to the whole church. And from this, we can conclude that those who compromise will be judged most harshly, but yet the whole church bears some responsibility as well, because they have tolerated the false teaching and have allowed others to go along with it. And they as a whole have been relaxed and have had this liberal attitude toward these compromises and ideas that have supported them. Indeed, the command at the beginning of verse 16, therefore repent, is clearly intended for everyone. All right, and now for the reward, assuming, of course, that they will embrace his warnings and straighten things out. He says, let anyone who hears, anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So two obvious questions from verse 17. What is the hidden manna, and what is the, what is the white stone? So I think we're all familiar with the, with the manna referred to in the Old Testament. During their 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites grumbled about the lack of food, claiming that life was better in slavery, for at least they were as slaves, they ate well. And God graciously responded to their complaints by sending them bread from heaven in the form of flakes on the ground. And the word manna, probably have heard this, comes from the Hebrew expression that means, what is it? All right, Because the next morning when they all saw it, that's what everybody was saying. What is it? What is it? What is it? You know, So that's how it got its name. And in the centuries that followed, because of this Old Testament story, manna became associated with God's supernatural provision and with the heavenly food that will be enjoyed in the future age of the promised kingdom, led by the promised Messiah. And so here in this passage, we could see this as Jesus promising them their share of that particular blessing. And this explains the nature of the manna being hidden. It is real, but it is yet to be revealed and enjoyed. The gift of manna seems especially fitting because of their situation here in Pergamum. If they resist the temptation to eat food sacrificed to idols, they will be rewarded with something better to eat. Now, the white stone's a little trickier. We're not exactly sure what this is referring to. There's, 
Many possibilities have been offered, but the one that seems to be the most promising is that like the manna, it too is a symbol of the blessings of the future kingdom. Both go together. If manna symbolizes the heavenly food at the messianic banquet, the wedding feast promised in Revelation 19, then perhaps the white stone symbolizes one's admission into it. Entrance is by invitation only, and the stone serves as the admission pass, or the token to get in. And if you have that token, you are warmly welcome. Now, we can't really speak conclusively about this, but the argument certainly has something going for it. So it goes like this. Small stones were commonly used as tokens of recognition in the Greco-Roman world of that day, especially when it came to major athletic events. Uh, we honor, you know, we here honor champions with trophies and prize money. Back then, they honored them with tokens made of stones. And the victor's name would be inscribed on it, and it could be used as a voucher, enabling him to receive certain rewards at public expense. More commonly, they would, be, they would serve as passes to um, popular public assemblies and festivals. And so this may be what the Lord had in mind when he promised the victors in Pergamum a white stone, because it's symbolic for their admission into the future kingdom of glory, including the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And we should note that throughout the book of Revelation, the color white is commonly used to symbolize eternal life and purity from sin. All right, finally for this morning, boy, we're still early. I, this is a long sermon, but look at the time. I could go another 20 minutes here. I need those 500 words back that I took out. <clears throat> finally, a few comments on how this message to Pergamum might be relevant to us. And not much needs to be said here for hopefully the lessons have been pretty obvious um, throughout the morning. One, in the face of opposition, don't renounce your faith in Christ. That's a pretty obvious lesson, right? Uh, it's okay to look for ways to get relief from persecution, but compromise is not one of those ways. You know, one option that we've talked about in the past is fleeing. Um, that's not very appealing, I realize, but it is an option that we see mentioned in the scriptures. Another lesson, don't go to pagan temples and share in their religious meals eating food devoted to idols, okay? We need to stop doing that. <laughs> um, probably most of us don't face that temptation too much. The other lesson here is refrain from sexual immorality, and this is more of an issue for modern, Christian, for modern Christians in America and even in, in among us here, no doubt. You know, refrain from, Christ, from, Christian, from sexual immorality. Any... Sexual activity outside marriage is forbidden. We've talked about this a lot in the past. This is, after all, what sexual immorality means. Marriage is God's institution, and he designed it to both sanctify sex and protect it. Anything outside marriage is unsanctified, unholy, will invite his wrath, and it is not protected in the sense that it often leads or often exposes one to numerous risks, physical risks, mental emotional, and certainly spiritually. And um, a, lot, a lot could be said about all this. Another lesson is that we all share together the responsibility, and yes, the burden, because it can be burdensome, of holding each other accountable. Um, we are not isolated units. As we've said in the past, this is not a me and Jesus kind of religion. This is a me and Jesus and his church body all together kind of religion. We literally belong to each other, as Paul told the Romans. That's a strong, a strong way to say it. We belong to each other. So if you were in a rowboat 
And one of the other guys pulls out a cordless drill and starts drawing a hole in the bottom of that boat, that would not be the time to say to yourself, well, I don't want to interfere and impose my beliefs on him. What he's doing is between him and God, right? It's not how we think about it. Well, it fits with the church. We often let other people get away with sin instead of confronting them because we fail to see how the ripple effect, how the damage it has done to all of us in those sorts of compromises. And the church at Pergamum is an example of this. And finally, <clears throat> we need to be very, very, very careful with anything that follows the pattern of Balaam's teachings, that of leading others into sin for personal gain. And there are a lot of examples of this, and though I had originally uh, prepared some examples to share, I decided to wait and just do a whole sermon on this later, hopefully um, not too long from now, but some point this, later this year. Balaam's kind of a mysterious guy in the Old Testament. It'd be good to spend some time on who he is, take a closer look at the scriptures that condemn his actions, and spend some time, more than what we have this morning, looking at how all of us are prone to imitate his example in ways that we may not even realize. So in the meantime, I would just challenge you to think of, you know, examples on your own of how, you know, Christians lead others to sin for personal gain and how you might have been guilty of that yourself. So next week, we will continue this with Christ's message to Thyatira from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, and I would encourage you to um, read ahead and be prepared for that. It's, it's the longest sermon of the seven, and, um, and, but we won't need to spend a lot of time on it because a lot of the material that, we'll, that we will cover there, we've already have covered in the, with, with the previous churches. All right, so let's stand, and I will dismiss this early. Emphasis early because I got 15 minutes, so next we can go 15 minutes long, right? Is that how it all works? I'll dismiss you with this this uh, favorite passage from Galatians, um, a blessing that uh, Paul gave to them. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Upon that, you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name, enjoy each other, and serve each other in love.